by the time you're 24 years old, yeah, your your lifestyle has formed your run. And so form can't fit function because form has already been, you know, destabilized, right? So, you know, we're sitting in a desk or we're wearing shoes and we have a, an 11 or a 12 or a 15 millimeter drop. So, you know, our, our whole lives, our heels are higher than our forefoot. And uh, we have done sports that are, you know, not bilateral. They are, you know, unilateral to one side. And we've done activities and we've lived in environments where, the surface was not safe. And I think all of those things require that we find a way now to be able to practice our craft consistently. And consistently really means over years for us to master that, right? Welcome to the Runform Podcast. I'm Bobby McGee, running mechanics expert. And I'm Matt Pandola, your run-specific strength coach. Matt and I have been working together for almost a decade on some of the top athletes in the world, and we've decided to share that process with you guys. We'll get into our topic today, and the first thing we were going to discuss is just about with run form. I was always told growing up, Bobby, that if I wanted to get better at running, then run more. And as a young athlete, I really fed into Everything that I especially looked up to with athletes like Bill Rogers, the the great American marathoner of the day, uh, he was my idol, really. And I read his book and and he was certainly along that philosophy. So I thought it'd be good to talk about that first today. What what we mean by form follows function or how you feel about a runner running more to improve their form? What What is the myth around that? Or what's the misconceptions maybe is a better way to say that? Yeah, the, it's, a, it's a great question, Matt. And I, and I think you can contribute hugely to this too with your, with your own experience, right? I've, I've never been a runner of the caliber that you are. So a lot of it comes down to, you know, what is your experience? But if you think of the great African runners, right? They've been running since they were children, right? And they've been running uh, not to become great runners, although their cultures have developed great runners. They've been commuting, right? They've been going back and forth. And they are also in a climate where they were habitually non-shod, right? So they didn't have shoes. And so, you know, if you say, okay, the form fits function model works, it yes, it absolutely works if people don't break down. So now you start running when you four or five, right, uh, of some considerable distance on uneven surfaces and you're not shod and your idea is to get to school or get to the store or get somewhere like that. And, you know, breakdown is not part of it. You're running within your capability at that point in time. By the time you're 24 years old, yeah, your, your lifestyle has formed your run. Now, conversely, you look at the vast majority of people who run today did not have that opportunity. And so form can't fit function because form has already been, um, you know, destabilized, right? So, you know, we're sitting in a desk or we're wearing shoes and we have a, an 11 or a 12 or a 15 millimeter drop. So, you know, our, our whole lives, our heels are higher than our forefoot. And uh, we have done sports that are, you know, not bilateral, they are, you know, unilateral to one side. And we've done activities and we've lived in environments where 
this surface was not safe. And I think all of those things require that we find a way now to be able to practice our craft consistently and consistently really means over years for us to master that, right? We know in endurance sports, overnight successes take, you know, six, seven, eight, nine years, right? And, and uh, so how do we intervene in that, in that environment and in that, you know, with that specific individual so that they remain consistent? And that intervention is the stock in trade of the coach or the biomechanist or the exercise physiologist, right? Where we take an athlete from where they are. So for years and years and years, physiotherapists knew that it was a good idea to intervene with people's running gait, with the way that they ran, so that they would not injure themselves. And the benefit of that intervention was that they would not get injured and they would be more consistent and so they would become better runners. It's only very recently that we've got to a point where we realize, wait a minute, just like in baseball and stuff like that, where we start having, you know, surgeries and approaches that are proactive, right? So we we prehab. So we, we you know, got a 13-year-old or a 14-year-old that's clearly got a big engine, comes from a great background, but there are some things in their gait that represent they're going to get stuck. At some point in time, they're going to get hurt, but this new research has now shown that changing people's run form in the correct manner leads to an enhancement of, re, uh, of performance over and above consistency. So in other words, how you put your foot down, where you put your foot down, how you move your body, both from a mechanical economics standpoint, but from a sheer human physics standpoint, that if you do this, you will run faster and you're fond of calling this free speed. And that really is free speed because we taking shit out of the way so that the runner that this person can be steps forward, right? And that's where my analogy comes from, from reaching inside and shaking off everything that's not a runner so that we left with, with the runner that that person could be. Yeah, no, I, I love that. There's so many thoughts that come to my mind as you, as you talk because I think that when I look back at my own history and knowing that N equals one, there's, I can't, I can't place my own history on everybody else, but still trying to learn from what worked and what didn't. I was more of a four foot runner. And back in the day, I was told that that is what you need to be to be elite. And I originally thought that everybody should try to be a four foot runner. And that kind of leads us a little bit more into our next myth or conversation around misconceptions with other programs that have become quite popular, it's kind of centered around trying to remove that heel strike from your gait, essentially getting more to the forefoot. And I know you have some strong opinions about that. I certainly do as well, but how, how do you feel about that and, and sort of that message that has gotten out to people about how they need to change their running? Yeah, I, I think, one of the reasons why I was never hugely successful from a business perspective is that I was never a faddist. I never came up with a system and spent my whole life pursuing that system, right? So back when I when I started coaching, even back when I started running myself and when I started running competitively, which was late 60s, right? 
where I was, you know, running cross country and 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 that kind of thing. Um, the the concept of how you put your foot down was was not even considered, right? We did have been growing up in South Africa. We did have a lot of our superstars. The first sub four minute miler in Africa was was uh, was uh, a South African gentleman by the name of Develius Lamprecht, and I used to coach his son, uh, who was also the equivalent over fifteen hundred meters of a sub four minute miler, and he ran sub four barefoot, you know. And then one of the greatest runners to come out of South Africa, Zola Budge, she ran for many years barefoot, even at World Cross Country Championships in the snowy environment. She won the World Cross Country Championships barefoot, you know. So um, going from that perspective to this conversation about habitually shod, right, um, the whole concept of heel strike versus midfoot, right, I think is 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 one worth having, but also considering that there will be fads, there will be generations. Somebody will publish a book or say something or do some research and say, nope, we should all be heel strikers. Nope, we should all be midfoot strikers, right? So if you look at the percentage of people that actually do heel strike, it's very, very high. The Japanese did some research where they had a look at a bunch of half marathons and they literally evaluated the entire field, right? And their, their numbers were in the high 80s of people that were heel strikers versus midfoot strikers. And then, you know, that number goes much higher when you look at the elites. A lot of the elite athletes will be midfoot strikers, right, as opposed to to heel strikers. But I remember years ago talking to the double American Olympian, Alan Culpepper, 208 Boston Marathon runner, and Alan said to me, when I do a long run, I'm a heel striker, you know. When I race 10,000 meters, I'm a, I'm a, you know, a midfoot striker. But when I race a marathon, I'm also a heel striker, you know, so... It's it's a speed dependent thing as well, and so I think, like anything, we need to look at it more in a more complex fashion, right? So there are good heel strikers, and there are poor heel strikers, and there are good midfoot strikers, and there are poor midfoot strikers, right? And then also just that distinction: what's the difference between a midfoot striker and a forefoot striker? You know, so when people start saying, "Oh, wait a minute, I thought forefoot was midfoot," right? And it's not. And then, you know, the last thing I want to say in that regard before we get into, you know, what, what really goes on when you're a heel striker, if it's a bad heel strike versus a good heel strike, right? And it's that uh, that whole concept that um, where do you want to do the elastic loading initially, right? Where do you, you know, is... Noakes did some great research on, on uh, Romanov's work with the pose method, right, where he said... All that happens when you move from being a heel striker to being a midfoot striker is that you shift the load, right? So when you're a heel striker, the majority of the of the load is is accepted around your knee, and when you're a midfoot striker, the majority of the initial load is accepted around your midfoot, right? So your ankle. Um, so I think that 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 that's a, a a great starting point, right? Absolutely, yeah, and I think. It it brings to mind when I was working with Matt Balzer, who's a, a good friend of ours. He uh, owns Reno Running Company here in Reno, and I worked with him as his strength coach for a few years, about four years actually. And when I first started working with him, he, I believe, was 12th at nationals for Xterra, and he really wanted to be a national champion. And I started working with him implementing run form drills that of course I was learning from you at the time and what that first process that we were uh, managing 
we're measuring and managing as much as we could, how this was going to be effective for him as an athlete going into his next season. I almost lost him about a dozen times in the first few weeks. He got really frustrated. And I think it is important to talk about how at first it just, you don't necessarily feel the advantages that you're working on. And I've started to coin it a little bit more, set it and forget it. You know, we're working on these things cognitively. We're thinking about how we can improve our function with these drills, but then it gets to the point where we want that athlete to have a very automatic response to what they've been working on. And by the end of that year, Matt was still, he was always more of a rigid striker where he would have more of that loading to the outside of his foot when he would uh, land. And that is something he was still doing, but we optimized that position more than it was before. And that led to 36 seconds faster per mile off of the bike. And he won his first national title. He, he went on to win four of them. But to me, the talking about when going on to win four of them is because we had long, more longevity as well. And a lot of the niggles, the aches, the pains that was setting him back and keeping him from being consistent with his progressions was also a big part of why that was a necessary process and why that worked. But, you know, again, I wasn't trying to uh, change how his body was working. I was trying to improve how that body was working. And, and that's kind of, in my mind, that's how we optimize a little bit more. And with somebody like Matt, he became such a strong believer in that, that I know today he goes out running with his friends or even with world-class athletes and can enjoy that without worrying about the same uh, issues that he used to have with his uh, hip, especially and through his T-band. Yeah, I've, this is such a cool conversation. I remember being in Berlin. I'd taken an athlete there. She ended up winning the Berlin Marathon. Her name was Colleen de Rook, and we were always amongst a bunch of Kenyans on the road, right, when we go into these major marathons. And I said to one of the Kenyans, uh, why do you guys run barefoot? He says, it's really simple, Bobby. We run barefoot because we can't afford shoes. As soon as we can afford shoes, we buy running shoes. <laughs> you know? So and it's just a, a whole interesting thing. But again, back to the heel strike, right? If you think about it, if a person is standing upright, right, their midfoot is further ahead of their center of mass. And if you look at the average pace that, you know, just a, a, a normal amateur runner runs at, right? They can afford to put their heel down first because their heel is much closer to their center of mass. So they have much more of a pivot. So the heel, the heel striker, it, it, you know, depending on the speed demands, but the heel striker is so much more uh, mechanically efficient because that heel is closer to the center of mass and they run with a pivot, right? So they've got a short enough stride that they're not falling out of space and, and needing that first spring, right? So if, if, you're, if you're a heel striker um, and you are running with a very long stride length, well, then then you're looking for trouble, right? But if you've got a pretty high cadence, the other thing with a heel striker is, is they, they can lean forward more, right? So they have a lot more free speed from, from that perspective. But they've got to realize then they've got to take care of their knees. They've got to take care of being well-conditioned and bring that knee um, underneath them, you still have to have a gathering motion when you're a heel striker. Another interesting thing there with most shoes, 
as they started being designed, they had a very big drop, right? And we spoke about that earlier, but they had that very big drop. And so a person might be putting their forefoot down first, but the the way that their weight is being received on the ground is the whole shoe. So it looks like they might be heel striking or midfoot striking, but you know it's the wedge of the shoe that's giving that information. Even when I'm doing analyses, um, looking at uh, two things, shank angle, right, which is a huge thing with with heel striking, right, is is how how far is your shin leaning back when you're heel striking because that's where the problem starts, right. Um, I'm looking for that gather. I'm looking for, is that foot moving backwards to gather the ground? Not because they're cognitively thinking about gathering, but you just want them to actively be putting their foot down, not passively waiting for the ground to come. So if you're a floater and you're waiting for gravity to bring you into the ground and you're a heel striker and you've got your shin too far out forwards, in other words, you haven't set yourself up with the knee set to bring your foot down under your center of mass, now you're going to have problems, which will be somewhat alleviated if you went to a midfoot strike, but eventually the metatarsals and the entire foot is going to start complaining with that anyway, even if you're a midfoot striker. And I think the last point yeah. I'd, I'd like to make about that is, is that what you have conditioned yourself to do, do that better. So if you've always been a heel striker, just become a better heel striker because going from heel to midfoot requires a massive transition phase. And it's not a lot of athletes that have the patience to be able to do that effectively so that they go backwards to be able to go forwards and not get injured. Yeah, I think that's why it's also important to have these conversations, people listening to us, because Matt was really resistant to these changes initially, and now he sings from the rooftops about how this really does work. And what I... Matt sells shoes for a living, right? So I, you mentioned shoes. And one thing I, I thought be interesting to just mention here is that I think of shoes as an, an aid, but not an answer. So when an athlete is getting a stability shoe and thinking, okay, well, now I've got a stability shoe, I'm all set. To me, the answer is that we need to work on more stability through our programs. We have a lot of focus to stability for the runner in these specific skill sets that they need stability for, but that shoe is not going to solve all the problems. I think it's um, it's a good aid and it can help us in our process, but it's not something we just fully rely on for our running or our performance. Uh, that's such a great point, right? Such a great point. We used to, until very recently, believe that the best way to, to stabilize an athlete that we thought was was uh, overpronating was with some medial posting at the rear foot of the shoe. In other words, assuming that everybody was a heel striker. But one of the things that we never considered was is that that posting was much more resilient to compression than the rest of the shoe. So somebody that would go across to a post would now be compressing the rest of the shoe and they would be turning their foot into a contradictory biomechanical device very, very quickly. And, you know, people talk about 300 miles. No, I'm talking about 50 miles, right? That you now, because you're being stopped from, from medially rotating, right? Which we need a little bit of. I just did a little post about that the other day. You know, everybody must pronate. I mean, I don't pronate. That's why I suck as a runner because... <laughs> I can't put myself down softly enough and I can't get onto my 
first and second met head, right? But now that outside of that shoe is just spongy, right? And it starts to collapse. Now you're creating these laterally tilted wedges, right? You're just, you know, adding, messing with the barris and valgus of the entire setup, you know? And, and, and I hate it when people go into a store and they come out and they think they've solved their problems, right? And I, I always sort of compare it to like, you can do two things with the Leaning Tower of Pizza, right? You can put up big posts along the side to stop it from falling further, or you can mud jack it, right? And big posts along the side are running shoes and mud jacking it is, is run form work, strengthening, uh, mobilizing, balancing, you know, return, returning correct function. Yeah, and I think this leads us really well into the final topic that I really wanted to go over, and it brings me back to a memory that I have with you. One of my initial experiences working with you, I was sort of learning still at that point a lot of your coaching philosophies. It was very early on, and you had me working with a triathlete, and automatically I just went into my mechanic mode as a strength coach and said, this is wrong, this is wrong, this is wrong. And you gently pulled me aside and, you know, she isn't broken. Stop talking to her like she's broken. You, you, you implemented something into me that I started working on when I got back with athletes, no matter what level they were running at, Matt is fast and free. Now, Lexi, you say it, Lexi is fast and free. And, and that is a, I, I, a belief that I that stemmed off of that experience with you. But in other words, when we talk about run form, we're not quote unquote fixing you. You're not broken. We're just taking the tools that you have and we're teaching you how to use those tools more efficiently, I feel like. And what I look at here is your comment on trusting how you feel when when you run and really what you mean by that because I think that's a light bulb moment for a lot of athletes especially at camps and I thought it would be fun to talk about what that really means for runners yeah now get back to your word Matt that that you use so effectively that that visceral feeling of what's correct right so uh, we know from brain psychology that that instinct really is utilizing the subconscious background of all the experience you have and having that be available um, underneath, right? So I learned this great lesson from Jim Lua that said, uh, who, Jim Lua was one of the greatest sports psychologists, you know, that, that the USA ever produced. And Jim said to me, NBA players, PGA players, NFL players, they come to me for help with sports psychology to get an edge, right? And so most people that get to the point where they say, should I be addressing my run form are looking for an edge. They're not broken, right? They want to get better. They want to be more mechanically economical. They want to be more efficient. They want to be able to, to free their, you know, their hips and their ankles and their knees up to run faster and not only run faster, but run faster safely. And so that process of habituation is what people are not willing to go through, right? That going in reverse, cognitively intervening. I love those four steps, right? You know, you um, you have those four steps of learning that that I think that we, we're in the process of working with here, right? So the first one is 
unconscious incompetence. And so our job in the beginning is quite hard. You know you're doing this, right? And you know that that's not working for you, right? Oh, no, no, I didn't know that, right? And then most people think, okay, now I just fixed that and I'm good, right? But no, the second step is knowing that you're doing it incorrectly, you know? Your third step is knowing that you're doing it correctly, all right, uh, because you've now done that learning, you've done that early working, but the main and important step is that unconscious competence, right? And I think that that's where you and I have got to that point where people are, are, are realizing, wait a minute, I do this and it feels like it's in isolation, right? And it feels really uncomfortable, all right? But the video is telling me that it's right. So I just got to keep doing that until this becomes comfortable. And the thing that was uncomfortable, that was, I know that was comfortable, but that was wrong, now has faded away. So it's that concept of replacing versus changing, right? So I like using the first two laws of mechanics, right? First law of mechanics is don't, don't uh, trust what you feel. All right, because you know nine out of ten runners, if you show them a slow motion video of themselves running from any angle, they are appalled. Like, oh my goodness, I'm a mess. And then you say, Well, you run twenty nine thirty for ten K, I wouldn't say you're a mess. <laughs> you know? <laughs> and then the second the second rule of mechanics, right, is is exaggerate. So a lot of the movements and things that we teach, not for duration. But for learning that process, we just had that happen at the camp, right? Where we had an athlete that was internally rotated, was getting his knee completely in the wrong position on both sides. And now a year later, we go back to another camp and we say, why are you running with your knee so wide? Oh, but that's what you told me to do. And so exaggerated, habituated, and now you can say, okay, let go of that and perfect. Right. Yeah. And I think just the, the idea, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. I, I personally have a problem with that because when you have an athlete that gets to the point where now their knee is talking to them and they say, well, I just ran a certain amount of miles and now my knee just wore out. And so running is bad for my knee. The way <laughs> you were running, <laughs> right? Yeah. The way you were running was, was bad for your knee. And now you have to deal with it, but you still have the tools to get that running back. It's now just giving you more purpose to give some specific drills to strengthen that position and add a lot more stabilization around that knee, for example. But it is not about, to me, waiting until that happens. That's where I believe in prehab to performance. And so taking that process on, I think does take some maturity and you deciding as a runner. And I think the people that we're talking to endurance athletes, triathletes, runners that say, you know, I want to put one foot in front of the other, but with purpose. And I think that you get to the point where you realize that your body is talking to you. And instead of ignoring that, you are paying more attention. And initially, that can feel like a lot of extra work. And because you're changing things, it can feel a little clunky. And trusting that process is what I urge people to do because it's well worth it in the long run, so yeah. to speak. Yeah, I mean, I, I love the old car analogy, right? You spend all this time working on your motor. Your motor can produce enough horsepower to go 100 miles an hour, all right? But that 
that your your suspension and your steering and and your transmission can only handle 45 miles an hour, right? And if you're going to be stubborn about it, then it's going to break down and you're not going to get either, right? You're going to have a great engine that you can chrome and put on display, but it's not going to go 100 miles an hour in the vehicle you've got. Yeah, there. I know. So just keep working at that vehicle's height. You know, you, you, you're, you're absolutely right there is, is that, you know, your, your running mechanics, the way that you use your engine to produce speed is not just 50% of the of the equation and your engine is not the other 50%. No, every one of those components is 100% of the equation, right? It's the, it's the law of holism. It doesn't matter if you've got a VO2 max that you set in the lab on a, on a bike erg, right? You, you were on an ergometer and you put out world-class watts, right? But you, you fall apart at nine-minute miles. <laughs> yeah, and you, and, you know, you brought up a point that I'd like to maybe my closing thought with. But for those of you out there thinking about whether or not you're going to work on your run form, some of you may be uh, a bit more established. Uh, with a guy like Matt Balzer, a lot of people would have said, don't change anything. He wasn't broken. He had some niggles, but he had um, maybe some times in his training where he had to take a step back, he felt like. But, you know, performance-wise, he was still at nationals and still performing well enough. He understood, though, that he could get more out of his performance. And with a guy like him, though, being a little bit more established, we had to be more patient. How long have you been running this way, right? And that's where I think we want to have not trying to make perfect or, or practice makes perfect analogy, but more about purposeful practice makes progress to me and just being patient with that process versus the other young man you were talking about, John Reed, who he was much, he's much younger and a little bit more adaptable to changes there. So I think just consider your own history and your own story and realize that it's, it's something that is worth that journey, but it is a different story for everybody and it's not always the same. And it's not something that we're trying to change overnight because your body does need to adapt to these changes. I think if that's done in the in a positive way and with the right mindset with some patience, then you're going to love the results. It's just in this world where we live with sort of immediate feedback or we, we get that automatic response to so many other things, then it can be hard to wrap our minds around putting in a longer process to get that result you want. But uh, I just urge people, it's so, it's so worth it so that you can keep running too in your 60s, 70s, and 80s, or even just going out for a nice hike. You know, th these are things that I think we, we forget are so important, not just for our performance now, but, but forever. Yeah, I, I'll finish off this part of the conversation too, Matt, with just two words. The one is hierarchy and the other one is patience, right? It's for people to realize what you do the most of, that is what you become. So if you do the most of something incorrectly, you become better at being incorrect, right? Um, and so in triathlon, that becomes really, really important, right? Because in triathlon, what can you do most of? You can bike most of, right? So from a cardiovascular standpoint, that's massive, right? Because it's really hard to make your heart tired, right? It beats when you sleep. It works all the time, right? And so 
when runners come to triathlon for the first time, I get this sense of, wow, I'm running better, but I'm doing less miles, but you're doing more aerobic work. You know, you're in the pool, you're on the bike and you're running, right? So that's the one thing, but then there's the mechanical deficits because now again, the thing that you do most of is what you're going to go be get best at. And mechanically, sometimes the bike is really at a, a disadvantage for, for your run, right? There's a lot of reasons for this and sim similarly with the swim. And then with the word patience is, uh, again, to use triathlon as an analogy, like if an average athlete comes into the sport of triathlon, without a doubt, the, the sport that's going to get better quickest is, is riding your bike. All right, you're just going to get better and you're going to go, wow, I really like this biking thing, so I'm going to do more of it because I'm good at it and I'm really getting better at it. Whereas running works the other way, right? Your first run is okay. You know, then your second run, you suck compared to your first run. Your third run, you really think, clearly I'm not a runner. You know, I, I, sh I shouldn't be running, you know. And, and by the time three weeks have gone by, and if you don't have the patience, you've quit. You know, you just have to go down to the track, you know, five times in a row and try and do a set of gentle 200s and you realize, oh, running's not for me <laughs> because you got, you got it all wrong, right? So that, that's the patience around running, right? And so especially when it comes to gait and to form, right? Um, I'm lucky with some of the elites that I've worked with. I'll ask them the question, how long did this take to work? And they'll say, two, 18 months, two years maybe, before I really started seeing the benefits. That's a lot of patience. That's a huge amount of patience, especially if you're 55 years old and you've got a championship race in three months' time, you know, and you want to get better. Yeah, no, for the uh, triathletes that follow Ben Canute had what people were calling that Phoenix year last year. And you and I would say uh, there was a couple years before that year that we really had to put in before we had that Phoenix year. It didn't happen all at once. It did take a couple years, but obviously it was worth it, right? So I, I love that, Bobby. Just reminding people too that with any question, the app that both Coach Bobby and I are on, that's a free app and you can always ask questions. We get these questions that we feel like are pretty popular and we get good response from with any question. And we know that that's an endurance focused community that we're talking to. So it's a great app to be on, to hear from not just us, but other coaches and other athletes. And, um, you know, you can ask away. We may be talking about your question in a future podcast. That sounds great, Matt. Thank you again. It was wonderful spending time with you. I look forward to seeing you next week. We're going to be working with some Olympians. It'll be nice to have, uh, McKeeley Jones, uh, you know, Olympic medalist from Australia and, uh, you know, Ironman World Championship champion, as well as Ben Canute at our camp, and then all those those wonderful uh, age group athletes that we're going to be trying to give them just a, a few more seconds per mile off the bike. Yeah, no, fantastic. You're obviously one of the head coaches at this camp, and, and ipso facto, I get to go with you, so I'm looking forward to it, and I appreciate you uh, keeping me in that process because I can't wait to learn more. Uh, but thanks again for listening, everybody, and we hope you listen again next time.